You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I know you love books as much as I love books, right? That is true. And my wife loves books more than either of us do. She's an elementary librarian. And sometimes I'm like worried that she reads too much. Yeah. But it's an awesome world, isn't it? Like there's nothing like diving into a book and just being totally immersed in the story the author is telling. It's like time traveling. Isn't it? And especially for history, right? Like you get, you know, you, you know, the past is always a foreign country. It's hard to really right. ever know what those people thought. But like a book can really immerse you in what daily life was like and what the the dilemmas that people faced in a way that it's just hard to do when you, you skim the surface, you know, of a topic, especially in a social studies class. That's true. Yeah, no, it is much more of an immersive experience. And it rounds out history, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just those facts. Like it, it can like really personify, like it makes people real. And honestly, I wish that we primarily read, you know, historical books, articles, things like that, as opposed to textbooks. I'm just don't find textbooks hardly ever to be very invigorating. Oh, that doesn't, uh, I know, right? <laughs> you don't find that is is bringing people to life. <laughs> There's a reason people don't buy textbooks when they go to their uh, local <laughs> their local bookstore. But whenever I finish a book, I just I'm obsessed with not only that book, but the author for a little while. Like the authors always bump right to the top of my list of people. Like I want to have dinner with alive or dead. It's like, if I just read your book, you're like on the list with like, I don't know, Jesus and Martin Luther King and Susan B. Anthony. You just get to Ooh. be on the top of the list. So where's this going, Dan? So I, you know, I I'm do, guessing you read a book. I did. I read a book and <laughs> I just, you know, reading this book made me want to integrate it into my teaching. So I read Never Caught, the Washington's yeah. relentless pursuit of the runaway slave Ona Judge, which I'd started to see a little bit about last year and it had kind of been on my list of books. And then I just saw it one day and was like, I'm going to read this. It's by Erica Armstrong Dunbar. And it's really like, it's just so good. So when you had talked about this earlier, I actually, I own the book. I got it from when I was at Mount Vernon, but I didn't read it. And once you started talking about it, I read it on tape on it within a week. It was really good. It not it? Yeah. Yeah. I did it as an audio book too. And I really loved it. And so right away, I just started thinking about, you know, Ona Judge's story as a yeah. woman who was, you know, a black woman in the late 1700s, early 1800s, who was enslaved by George Washington and about how George Washington is always in our standards. And I often talk to my students about whose lives matter, not only right. in the present, but in history. And if we're only going to tell like the great man version of history that includes Washington and his military and presidential political accomplishments, then we are also saying that people like Ona Judge who we don't know what she would have done in her life with if she lived in a free society, right? right. With equitable opportunities, um, that her life doesn't matter as much. And so it like it made me say like whenever I teach Washington, I'm always going to teach Ona Judge too. Right, that's great. I like it. I I really like the book because it definitely complicates George Washington. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like it just it complicates him in such a way that I think is really healthy and really helpful. It also complicates the lives of African-Americans at the time, right? That, right. There, that there's not one way that slavery exists. I think we often get the, the picture of plantation slavery in the South, but a lot of people don't understand as much for, for people who are enslaved, who work in homes, and also who live in communities where there are freed African-Americans at the same time as they're enslaved. And I, I like that this book really does tackle that. And I know you're gonna, we're going to have the author on, and I've been looking forward to this for so long. But I have a really terrible thing. Well, something terrible to tell you. I'm stuck in an airport. I know. I know. So I can't, I can't be there. Luckily, you're, you're excited about this. And so we wrote down some, some questions I'm going to ask for you. But you will be, you'll be missed. I'm going to try to do some Michael impersonations. Um, oh, oh, great, great. <laughs> I think our comedy is a little different. So it'll be interesting to see if I can, if I can pull it off. I look forward to seeing how the interview goes. 
So without further ado, we would love to bring to the podcast one of the people that would be at my dinner table of all people past and present, Erica Armstrong Dunbar. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Yeah, I sort of consider myself a really fortunate person because my sort of K through 12 experience, you know, was really just so full of wonderful experiences. I went to a small Quaker school in Philadelphia. So I do have a question about Quakers because every time I read history, I always feel like Quakers are sometimes like years ahead of the game and doing a lot of right things. I think of, right, Susan B. Anthony was a Quaker. Mm -hmm. Some of the early Mm -hmm. abolitionists were Quakers. Do Quakers just have like something going on? I think they do. So I went to Germantown Friends School and the Germantown Monthly Meeting is sort of known for its, it really has a sort of historical legacy of kind of jumping out front and, and landing on the right side of issues regarding social justice and equality. And so that, in addition to going to school in Philadelphia, a place where sort of you can't, his- you can't escape history, it's all over. I think it primed me for what would be my career. I didn't know it at the time. I simply liked history. I liked stories. I liked hearing good stories and reading good stories. Now, what I'll say is that I read these stories and I I sort of did really well in history. But the one thing that was lacking going to school in the 80s was that I really wasn't exposed to any kind of African-American or women's history. There were attempts, but they were, you know, sort of few and far between. And so when I got to college and decided that I wanted to be a history major, at the time, my goal was to be a history major because I loved it, uh, but to become a lawyer to make lots of money. That was the plan. It didn't happen. But I decided that when I went to to college that I would major in history. And I went to the University of Pennsylvania and I happened to be really fortunate to have a group of excellent scholars in African-American history. And I was sort of hooked from that moment on. And some, some professors who said, Erica, you should really think about becoming a professor. And I was like, what? How do you do that? How, how long do you have to be in school? And then they told me and I freaked out a little bit. And then, but I was, I was hooked. I was sold. And so I decided actually to, to go to graduate school and went directly from, uh, from college. So I graduated in May and started a PhD program at Columbia in, in August or September. And, you know, so I sort of feel like from the very beginning, my interest in African-American and women's history came from their absence. It came from the absence of the narrative in the narratives that I was reading in high school and college. Do you feel like you were very aware of that absence in high school, that there was a lack of women, African-Americans and African-American women's in the curriculum? Was that something that that you were contemplating then or is it something that that came up? as you as you went to college and were exposed to it, started to realize, oh, wait, that was missing? Oh, I kind of, you know, I knew in high school. And I tended to be one of those students who was sort of vocal. And I had, you know, I had some English professors that were, I think, uh, ahead of the game. And so they were having us read, you know, Morrison and, you know, Maya Angelou. And we were, so we were exposed in other places in the curriculum. But, you know, history, I think, tends to be a little more resistant to changing narratives. I think it's taken us a little longer to think about how we include people who don't appear in the sort of traditional archives. And, you know, it takes longer to create those to create that kind of work. But I think, you know, it's taken historians a little little bit longer. So, you know, reading texts in, if I was reading, I don't know, Morrison, if I was reading Sula or Tar Baby, or, you know, I asked the question, why aren't we reading something that works with this thematically in history? And so, you know, it just wasn't there. And I would make it happen myself. So when it came time to doing our research projects, I I remember my senior project in, in 
history, we could choose a research topic. And I chose to write on the colored troops that were stationed right right outside of Philadelphia at Camp William Penn. And it wasn't because anyone had told me, think about this. It was just because I liked the 19th century. I wanted to learn more about where I lived and the history around it. And so I guess there were all kinds of signs that this is this would be my path uh, when I was just a teenager. I had a very similar experience. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I had like a very mediocre Oklahoma history class I took at the community college. Someone they convinced me that the the old professor who'd been there for a million years was like, oh, don't take his class. He's grumpy and hard. Turns out like he really was challenging, but like loved history. And I wish I'd taken him. But the thing the teacher did is she is she gave us a uh, an assignment where we got to choose our topic. And I knew almost next to nothing about the Tulsa race riot or what should mm. probably be called the Tulsa massacre of 1921. Yeah. And it changed the way I looked at history. And that really solidified for me was one of those moments when I was like, I want to go into social studies education, because this should be part this. These are the things we should investigate to learn how to make a better society. Yeah, no, I, you know, one of the best experiences I've had as a professor, aside from teaching, you know, teaching my sort of AFAM and women's history courses, is that for a long time, I helped to run our social studies education program. Uh, When I taught at the University of Delaware, we had a very kind of extensive program that ran out of history, although of course it encompassed all of the areas in social studies. And so what I learned, honestly, I I learned it once I was a, a college professor, was like, wow, these social studies teachers, they have to do a whole lot. They have to be (laughs) totally prepared in so many other areas. Good thing I picked this. (laughs) I always tell people they, they're, you know, you often hear politicians are like, we'll take more history classes. And I'm like, it was great. That would have been great for my first year when I taught U.S. history. My second year, I was teaching AP psychology. And so um, it's, so it's, (laughs) It is difficult. If I can ask you a question, we haven't had many historians on the podcast, but we have a lot of history teachers in our audience. So mm-hmm. what would you say, what, did, what what would you say you take away from your doctoral studies, your preparation to be a historian that maybe teachers could, could glean a little wisdom from? Yeah, you know, I think that what I learned, I mean, I, I learned a whole lot in the time that I was at Columbia. I think that we, we spend so much time as historians Trying to, I'm probably going to make some folks mad in my profession, but who cares? Trying to figure out ways to sound so smart (laughs) about some of the most basic things. And, you know, while I I think I learned how to do that, I think the most important thing I learned was how to tell a good story. And I think part of that comes from, you know, I happen to have an advisor, Eric Foner, who's a super well-known, prolific writer, just his storytelling abilities are are amazing. And so in many ways, you know, I, I listened, I learned a craft of storytelling from him. And I think, you know, the art of storytelling really depends on your audience. And I think what I've tried to do now as a sort of more senior professor is to move between spaces of, you know, writing for academic audiences, for my peers, my academic peers, but also writing for more general audiences. And for me, that's more of, in some ways, it's a civil rights issue, I think. I think that education is a civil rights issue and that as historians, we need to make certain that our work translates across audiences. It shouldn't just be for the ivory tower. It shouldn't just be for other academics. But that, you know, the history that we've spent so many years working on really needs to be shared with a broader audience. So when it came time to write my second book, I made the decision that I did not want to write a book that was only for academic audiences. I wanted to write a book and I, you know, I say this often, I wanted to write a book that my academic peers would respect, but that my aunt would read. And so, you know, my aunt bought my first book, but I'm sure she didn't read it. And I don't blame (laughs) her. You know, she's not academic. But I really sort of felt that it was time for me to also, as a writer, to write in a way that felt more comfortable, uh, that was more sort of natural and organic for me. 
but to use the techniques, techniques and the methodology that I learned as a graduate student and then as, as a professor and a writer and to bring them together. Well, you, I can say from my perspective, you write beautifully. It, I, Thank you. Right when I started your book, you, the stories were what brought me in and your whole narrative just flowed so well throughout the book and Thank you did you. a tremendous job. So the book that you wrote was Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave, Ona Judge. And so can you tell us about this project in this book? Yeah, this is, like I said, this was a book that I decided to sort of return to what was natural and in terms of a writing style for me. And I think as I moved, as I kept writing, as I worked on the project and and eventually finished the book, I realized that it's sort of, in many ways, it was a sort of emancipating experience for me as a scholar. So I was working on the first book and it called A Fragile Freedom. And it's, it, I look at how black women in the North become free sort of, and it was something in graduate school. I, I, you know, thought about like, we know so much at that point about sort of slavery in the antebellum South and thinking about slavery in just a Southern context. But what about the North? I kept saying, you know, what about the North? And that's what led me to write this first book about how Black women became free, knowing that slavery existed in all of the colonies, that the first laws about African slavery appear in Massachusetts, not in Virginia. And so to me, it became really important to be able to unpack that. And look at how slavery ended in in one place and proliferated in another. So I was in the archives, you know, being a nerdy historian, reading newspapers. That's what we do when we want to figure out everyday life. Is, is that where you start? Is I mean, is are newspapers like one of the most common places historians go to to look first? Is that because that does that provide like a larger context of the attitudes of the time? I think, yeah, I think it depends on the time period that you're writing about. For me, I was interested in the late 18th century and early 19th century. And there's so few documents that are written and maintained by and about Black people that in in many respects, the, the newspaper is one of the few places you can go to get some kind of glimpse of, of everyday life, if it, whether it's about slavery or it's about freedom or about laws that are being passed. And so I was doing just that. And also just wanted to kind of get a feel. I was writing about Philadelphia and I wanted to get a feel of of everyday life. And I, to this day, when I'm teaching my undergraduate students, and I think this is, this works K through 12, to pull up a newspaper ad, uh, to pull up the newspaper period. And, and there could be a whole conversation about the difference in print culture from the 18th century to the present. But I was being a nerd and looking, doing what I love and reading old newspapers. And so I come, I'm reading the Philadelphia Gazette and I come across a runaway slave advertisement and it was dated May of 1796. And I thought, okay, that's somewhat odd in Philadelphia. Slavery is pretty much gone. It's pretty much dead. Who's advertising for slaves in Philadelphia? Who was Um, it? (laughs) (laughs) It was, you know, it said pretty clearly in the the advertisement, absconded from the household of the president of the United States. And I thought, what? Did your jaw just drop to the floor? Like you had no clue that was coming? Yeah, a little bit. Oh my (laughs) gosh. It was, it was sort of just like, wait a minute, abscond, who ran from the president? You know, I had to do one of those moments where I was like, okay, wait, 1796, that's George Washington. Okay, who's running away from George Washington? And why is George, George Washington brought his slaves to Philadelphia when he was the first president? Wait, what's going on here? And so I was immediately struck and the advertisement named her. And so the advertisement called her Oni Judge, O-N-E-Y. And I call her in the in the book, I call her Ona Judge, because that's the name that she went by at the end of her life. Oni, I argue, was a sort of nickname, a diminutive of her name, like Bobby or Timmy Oni. And so as a sort of marker of adult dignity, I call her Ona. But all of the records about her from that time period refer to her as Oni. So I thought, okay, who is this Oni Judge who they describe as a 
20-something-year-old, and they call her a mulatto, who was uh, very freckled with bushy hair. And I thought, okay. Well, there were a couple things that went through my mind. First, my goodness, I've never heard of this. I'm completely pulled in. I'm going to figure this one out. I need what happened to her. And so I was excited. And then, but at the same moment, I was also like mad. And I was frustrated. And I was mad and frustrated because I was like, why don't I know this story? Here I am, supposedly an expert in early African-American women's history. And I don't know this name. I don't know this story. And this is about George Washington. And why haven't we heard this yet? You know, there are so many biographies on George Washington. And so I thought, well, maybe I can figure out a way to sneak this into the first book that I was, what book I was writing at that moment. And then I said, no, I need to sort of come back to this. So I finished the first one and then started uh, really pretty quickly trying to find out who this Oni judge was, what happened to her. And it really led me on a nine year journey of uncovering her life and eventually sharing her story. Well, the detail you ta- you go into her story is incredible. I mean, I, I feel like I, I, you know, kind of know her in a sense, you know, I mean, you got you told about so many parts of her life, the struggles and the different components and the complexities. And you just get a sense of, you know, and the, I, it seems like one of the hard things is that I know d- during these times, there oftentimes are not written accounts from people who were enslaved themselves. And so your ability to fill in the gaps, although you did have, right, an interview, which must have, I did, so that's like another thing. I mean, when did you find out that the interview existed? Because I would think that would be another jaw-dropping moment. Yeah, it was, you know, when I sort of threw myself completely into the project, fairly early on in in the researching, I, I discovered that she actually gave two interviews towards the end of her life, right? So I thought, oh my goodness, we have although it was an interview and Ona Judge was not, she of course was not literate while she lived with the Washingtons. She was not as, you know, that was the custom. It was illegal to teach enslaved people eventually to read and write. And so she does become literate once she manages to escape. But the fact that we have her testimony, she's really the only fugitive that was once in the household of the Washingtons to give their testimony. So that is amazing that we have someone who was enslaved technically to Martha Washington. She was what was called a dower slave. She was owned and passed down through Martha's estate that she acquired after she became a widow from her first husband. And so technically, of course, George Washington was in charge of the estate. But Ona's testimony gives us the only really firsthand account from someone who lived as an enslaved person under the Washingtons. So when I came across the interviews, I was like, here it is. Here's what most historians working on this time period about enslaved people don't ever have. And the reality is the reason why she was interviewed was because she was the slave of the Washingtons. And so that gave me a whole other opportunity to tell her story. So one of the things that that stood out to me, there's so many different things I could bring up, but one thing that really I think would be helpful for social studies teachers in particular is the way that you get exposure to the laws and Mm -hmm. the rules and the culture around slavery in different locales during this time. So we have part of the stories in Virginia Part of it's in Philadelphia, which that whole part to the it's it is amazing to me for Ona Judge to to be in the city with so many freed African Americans at that time, mm-hmm. and then to go to New York, which I've kind of been reading a lot a little bit more about lately in some critiques of Hamilton, the musical about the greatest mm-hmm. city in the world, about how entrenched slavery was in New York at that time too. So, what kind of like was surprised you or was challenging in kind of telling the story that went across these, these, you know, these three states. Yeah, no, I, I actually, that was one of the things that made me excited, or if not, maybe excited isn't the best way to describe it, but what I realized was that by using Ona's story, by doing something that was somewhat biographical, I could move, I could allow readers to enter into the world of 
the early republic, the beginning of this nation, and that we could cover a tremendous amount of space and place and time through her story, she was unique in that she traveled. So she's born and raised and spends the good deal a good deal of her younger years at George Washington's Mount Vernon in Virginia, right? So she's a Virginian slave who's taken with the Washington by the Washingtons to the nation's first capital of New York. She lives there for a short period of time and then moves to Philadelphia in 1790 when Philadelphia became the nation's capital. And so, and she would spend six years there and eventually would escape and flee to New England, to New Hampshire. And so I thought, okay, what a great opportunity to follow this woman, to follow her just as the nation is beginning and to move into these different spaces and be able to compare them. So I could tell the story about slavery in Virginia on George Washington's Mount Vernon. And then I could move into New York and tell a story about New York and Philadelphia that were very different, right? And to, in some ways, attempt to pull apart this myth of a free North, right? And that to really understand that many of these new states were very different regarding slavery. And so it's odd that when she travels to New York, which is further north in Philadelphia, that that slavery is much more alive there than it is when she arrives in Philadelphia. And then what it means to really live in the nation's birthplace in Philadelphia, where you are surrounded by the largest free Black community in the early Republic. How did that affect her? How could it not have affected her? And then, of course, to be able to travel with her once she is a fugitive, once she is running from the Washingtons, and once they are sending basically slave catchers after her to try and reclaim her you know, she travels to New England. So I get to tell, once again, that story of New England through the lens of a fugitive woman. And that's a different story as well. You know, what did it mean to be in a place like Portsmouth, New Hampshire, when there were hardly any Black people living there, enslaved or free? (laughs) What did that mean? And also, how difficult was it to, to remain anonymous, to remain hidden, which is what all fugitives want. So Ona's life became that perfect portal to get. And, you know, I think for for college professors, for high school history teachers, and as well as for sort of middle school teachers as well, it gives, uh, I think biography often lends itself to get at some of these larger issues about an American narrative. And so Ona's life, I saw immediately, would allow me to do that. And I would even argue, too, I think this is a good way into talking with elementary students. We we were just discussing in our social studies and methods class that U.S. history is taught in fifth grade. And I think that's mm. uh, about the age where you can start introducing it. And this could potentially be a way into the conversation. A couple, you know, I think one thing you that you really did so well is you just humanized Ona Judge in the struggles the fears she has, I mean, I think that brought to life the fears that someone in her position had that whenever she was potentially going to be, you know, bequeathed to Martha Washington's daughter, Moody daughter, if I remember right. Granddaughter. Um, granddaughter. Gran- Moody granddaughter, yes. um, which mm-hmm. was very concerning about just every time that happens, the fear of separation from yeah. family, the fear of separation from others, but also the fear of abuse or rape yeah. or other things where you don't have control of. But then the the flip side of that is the courage that she has in this. I feel like that's the other thing. It's like when I think of how do I describe Ona Judge and when people, you know, when these slave catchers were after, I just think I can't imagine the courage she had. Mm. And she was just so convicted. And she's like, I'm free. Yeah. <laughs> and I just yeah, that, that or at stood least up. living as a free person. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I think as a historian, it's, you know, it's my job to tell this story uh, with facts and evidence. And that's what I was trained to do methodologically. But I also think, you know, the story of slavery often, it can't help but dehumanize its subjects because slavery was so dehumanizing. And so I really feel compelled 
to insert in my work the the sort of factual importance of, of the moment of the time of the laws, but also to remind people that we are talking about people that we, yes, mm-hmm. they were considered mm-hmm. property of someone else, but they were human property. And so I think it's really easy for us to talk about numbers and, and laws and things that, yes, it's, you know, those are concrete things. I, I think it's hard to get at what I would call the interior lives, the interior spaces of the enslaved because of the documentation. We don't mm-hmm. have you know, a significant number of narratives or journals or diaries. We have some that give us, let us get inside. And so even with with Ona, I didn't have a diary from her. I didn't have a journal. I didn't have, in part because she was illiterate, but also, you know, that it wasn't what most uh, enslaved people were, were doing or writing. And so there were moments that uh, methodologically I kind of decided to move in a direction that most historians feel uncomfortable doing. And that is I use what I call informed speculation. And so I'm very clear in the text when I am recording something that is or writing about something that I have a footnote for evidence, a date and a document. But there are other places in which I don't have that. Now, I might not have something that tells me own a judge baked brown bread on this day. You know, I don't have that document. But what I have are documents from other enslaved women, other fugitives that telling me that they baked brown bread and I have a recipe from the 18th century. And so I don't feel uncomfortable saying own a judge probably baked brown bread this day, you know, so I I think in order to get at some of the details, some of the kind of emotional, emotional details as well, that I drew upon the experiences of other women in similar situations where I did not have a piece of evidence about Ona's life. But, you know, as a historian, I had to be very careful and make it very clear when I was speculating and when I wasn't. And that makes a lot of sense because the alternative is to not tell those stories fully because Ona Judge, other enslaved people at the time, um, and even also freed black people, free black people at the time, you know, if there is a lack of documentation because of oppression, does that mean we don't tell their stories? And that's what I think you, it was such an amazing job that you brought her life back. you, You brought her character back. The flip side here, though, is you also learn a lot about the enslavers. I think that the book taught me a lot about Martha Washington and George Washington and the ways they viewed slavery. And there's parts of the book that really stood out for part of it was, you know, I I think probably I'd had inklings of this before, but some of the tasks that, that Ona Judge and other people performed for Martha Washington and remind me of the tasks that like parents perform for their children, help them comb their hair. You know, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking like, it's, I don't know. I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, the mm. I feel like it's almost like, you know, Martha Washington. I pictured her as this childlike person who couldn't comb her own hair. And that, <laughs> that like, I don't, that really bothered me. Like mm. that someone else would do that for you and you would sit there while they comb your hair. I don't, so what, what do we yeah. learn? What do we learn about the Washingtons and their views of slavery at the time? Yeah. You know, when I. I was I was careful when I wrote this book. I was careful in that you know this was not written to be a takedown of the Washingtons because I didn't necessarily think that that was helpful nor was it like a goal. And I, I also you know I'm very clear to people I'm not a Washington biographer. I focus on African American women's lives, and I'm I'm a biographer of, of Ona Judge and her life intersects with the Washingtons. But, you know, there are a whole bunch of people who write just on the Washingtons. I meet the Washingtons in their interactions with the enslaved. And really, this never caught as the first book to do that, right? To actually have a person who was enslaved 
by a former president who left behind a testimony about it. And so what we learn through through looking at the tasks of the enslaved by looking at, you know, Ona helping to bathe Martha Washington to, to brush her hair, as you said, and basically performing a role that required her to be present, but invisible, right? That she had to master this task of always being available for Martha Washington. So Ona's called up to work in the mansion house at, at Mount Vernon at the age of 10. And she's called up to basically learn, and, and this is very typical for enslaved children, that between the ages of eight and 10, you would receive some kind of permanent work assignment, I guess we'll call it. And Ona was going to follow in her mother's footsteps in that she was going to become a spinner and a seamstress. And she did. She was actually a very good seamstress. And at some point, she's brought up at the age of 10 to start this sort of life in service. And at some moment, Martha Washington decides that Ona is going to be her go-to enslaved person, her top slave, for the lack of a better phrase. And with that responsibility came a complete lack of privacy, a complete the need to sort of be on call all of the time, day and night. And as a what we would call a teenager now, um, she was doing those response, she was engaged in those responsibilities of brushing hair and, and bathing her and making certain that she was comfortable at all times. And so, and it was that position that made her top on Martha's list when it was time to leave Mount Vernon. The Washingtons were very clear that although they were traveling north, they were uninterested in living their lives without slave labor. Didn't matter that they were going to New York, didn't right. matter that they were going to Philadelphia, where slavery was was in decline. They wanted to live a life, a lifestyle to which they were accustomed, and that included slave labor. So we learn a lot about the about Martha. And in a lot of ways, Martha and George are a, a study in contrasts, you know. So I think it's kind of what I wanted to do was show this married couple, this couple that you know, considered the founding, you know, founding mother and father of the nation and show just how, how differently they felt about a subject that was so important and controversial at the time. And that was slavery. Well, you did a, a really good job at that. And you say you, you were not a Washington historian, but I did feel like I came away understanding George and Martha Washington's and views towards slavery a lot better and understanding how, you know, again, they, as, as white people of the time, how they saw people who were enslaved mm -hmm. and how they, they saw them in a dehumanized manner. Mm -hmm. within this normalness of their lives, right? And and so it was really, I, I agree with, I think, everything you said that I think it really provides a way into the complexities of how people understood slavery at the time. So it was, it was incredible. It also helps us understand that, you know, the Washingtons were human. And that was one thing I wanted also in, this, in the way that it's my job to make certain that the lives of the enslaved, that these people are recognized as people, like as humans. I, I think the way our narrative regarding American history and the way we fashion George Washington, I really wanted to take the opportunity to humanize him and to show him as someone who changed his mind about things, mm -hmm. someone who was affected by his circumstances living in the North just as much as, as Ona, maybe, and also someone who lived, who, who did, you know, he sacrificed his life for the founding of the nation, meaning he gave up a good, many, many, many years, whether it was leading the American Revolution or serving as president. He was someone who was affected by that experience. He was also someone who had eventually developed misgivings about slavery. And I think that's one of the things I love sharing with students, that so often they walk into a classroom thinking about slavery as this sort of fixed status, that you were either a slaveholder or you weren't, or you were against slavery or you were forced, you know, for slavery. And George Washington was someone whose ideas about it changed over time. And what a great way to sort of remind students in particular that things don't have to be fixed. 
Right, and that comes out especially towards the end of the book. I really remember noticing that the, the, their different views and how they were shifting came out a bit. So I do have, this is just a random question, okay? Sure. And so everyone in the 17 and 1800s, or all, a lot of women seem to be named Eliza. <laughs> okay? <know. laughs> and so, and this is, if you're a Hamilton musical listener, then you've got Eliza <laughs> stuck in your head already. But that, so one thing I had to ask you, is that was just I couldn't figure out is Ona Judge's daughter who was born after she had left was named Eliza, but yes. the person the one of the reasons she left was because she did not want to be bequeathed to Martha Washington's granddaughter whose name was Eliza, Eliza. whose daughter <laughs> whose her daughter name was Eliza. Eliza. I mean, the funny part, I'm so glad you asked that because it became, you know, while I was writing it, my editor was like, okay, there are like five Elizas here. Can we shorten someone's name? Can we call them Elizabeth? <laughs> like, and it, and even when it gets to the point when Ona runs off to New England, to New Hampshire, you know, the, the Senator's daughter who finds her sees her, her name's Eliza too. So, you know, oh it's my. like, Eliza and Hannah's that there were a whole bunch of them. And so, yeah, everybody, everybody was Eliza. But, you know, what's interesting, it sort of it created a background that I hadn't anticipated in that sort of showing the kind of regularity of other people, the kind of and, and placing Ona, someone with a very unique name. You know, there was no one else named Ona or Oni that I could find in Virginia, in Philadelphia at that time period. Mm -hmm. um, and so in many ways, it just shines a light once again on how unique and how different um, she was. Her experience as an enslaved person wasn't per se unique but the fact that she was enslaved to the first president and his wife was was just that. Well, and the the one thing with, and maybe Ona will now, with your book, will become a more popular name again, which what a great way to kind of honor her. her I've you met know, Ona, some. I've have met, you met some, some Onas, Onas since. Yeah. Yeah, I've had, you know, on, on doing some book talks, people will come up to me and they'll say, my name is Ona. And <laughs> I'm, I'm just like, oh my goodness, let's take a picture. So I've met two, two Onas and one Oni. Wow. So, wow. Um, yeah, it's been, we'll see, maybe it'll become the 2019 top list uh, and make that list of top girl names. There we go. Uh, there we go. <laughs> I just, the thing that stumped me was that I, that Ona Judge would name her daughter Eliza after not wanting to be, you know, bequeathed to yeah. an Eliza, but maybe that was her sign of resistance. I didn't know. There, there's or, probably... or maybe, maybe it was, you know, maybe it was her husband's mother's name. You know, yeah. maybe it was a family member on her husband's side that, you know, we didn't know. We, I wasn't able to find much about her husband. Maybe everyone else in her family was named Eliza. And so <laughs> <laughs> that was it. she's the only Ona and it's a bunch of Elizas. <laughs> so we really appreciate you, you know, taking the time and talking to us today. And so we'd lo I'd love for any advice you have for classroom teachers about how they approach yeah. this or just how they approach historical work. And I know that you have coming out a young adult version of this. Yeah. You know, as a historian, that you don't have to do that, right? Like, that's probably no. not how you get tenure or get full professor at, at Rutgers. No. Uh, so what, what was the motivation behind moving it into a young adult? And I have, I do have a follow-up request. Maybe we consider a picture book at some point on Ona Judge. Oh, you're, you're, I'm, 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 I'm way ahead of you. Um, oh. I, <laughs> I think that. You know, for me, once when I finished writing the adult version, I always sort of knew that this was a story that needed to be legible for younger readers. And if you want to change the way you learn history, you don't wait for people to get to college or to high school even. I would argue that, you know, you have to present students with information at a much earlier age. And so if I really wanted to change the way we learn about slavery, we learn about the lives of ex uh, and experiences of enslaved women, I, I was convinced that I had to write for a younger audience. So, however, 
I don't write for a younger audience. You know, I, I would argue that, you know, the adult version has been, is read at the high school level. And I've gone to different high schools and I've talked about it with students and done sessions with them. And it's great. But it became very clear to me that I needed to work with someone. And so I teamed up with uh, a woman, Kathleen Van Cleves, a friend who writes for younger audiences, kind of YA, mostly fiction. Um, and I, we decided to do this um, to work together. And so it's actually a middle grade reader. So it's the expectation of reaching audiences from age ages eight to, to 12, of course, depending on where your student student is, what they're reading. But, um, you know, so often I hear that slavery is too difficult to tackle in the classroom, that it's uncomfortable, that it, you know, and I, I believe it is uncomfortable, it is difficult, but one of the ways we pull that apart is by dealing with it, looking it straight mm-hmm. in the eyes. And, you know, if I didn't, I feel strongly that for historians like myself, We've got to give teachers the texts. We can't say we want you to do X, Y, and Z. We want you to teach this in the classroom, especially when there's so many, so many responsibilities that are falling on the shoulders of social studies teachers. We can't say do this and then not provide them with text to do it. It's it's impossible. So um, that led to my, in part because I love teachers and they are my champions, um, it became really important for me to make this legible for students, but to give teachers a tool. Well, I definitely think the full book is very high school appropriate, and I think it's a, it would be a tremendous addition. Most, every level, middle, elementary, middle school, and high school have George Washington somewhere in the standards, right? So this is an easy addition. I always say, I've, I talked to my students, I said, you know, I'm not going to mention George Washington without mentioning Ona Judge anymore. Um, she's o- she's always going to be part of it, and I think the best one of the best ways there are we do have a an, another episode on on teaching uh, slavery, um, which you can listen to, and we had some some of the folks from Teaching Tolerance come on, and they worked on on um, recommendations for teaching slavery that can be helpful for mm-hmm. teachers. I find going to the sources is one of the most useful things to do because yeah. you just examine what's happening here, and so yeah. I can say just from I read your book and the the runaway ad stood out to me so Mm. much so I took that turned that right around and took it to my students in our elementary methods class and we spent probably 30 to 40 minutes talking about this one ad and trying to just make sense of what's going on here and there's so many layers of things Mm. happening in this single ad from from George Washington the middle being just randomly being like we don't know why she left we don't have any, you know, like it has nothing to do with like finding her. And oh, it's like he's slavery. And so, and so, yeah. And so we were trying to say, what's he signifying? Who's the audience? Mm-hmm. Why is he saying this? And this, a lot of the students didn't know that there was different statuses for black people yeah. at that time. That's yeah. in there. They didn't know why it was mentioning, you know, what kind of clothing she had. And so right. we just uncovered layer and it's just peeling back layers of history and everyone was into it and everyone was like wanting to understand it. And I like to think of studying, you know, history and doing social studies work. I always say that we're trying to be like detectives, right? We're trying to mm-hmm. uncover uncover mysteries, a time in the sure. past. And, and that's a great way to present it to kids is because it's like a bunch of uh, mysteries that we're trying to see what happened. And they were into it. So anyways, that ad, if anyone wants, I can I can share with anyone the questions I had. But I just sat back. I didn't teach it. I put the ad up and I gave them time to talk about and I just led a discussion by asking questions and it was really fun so that is so I'm so glad to hear that I think that I use the ad but I also use some of the letters that George Washington writes about Ona Uh, because once again you have his you know I'm like don't believe me believe George (laughs) look at what he wrote he uh, said it (laughs) there's his that's his penmanship right there so I do you know I think that primary sources at, at whatever age, whether you're in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, that, um, you know, to have um, primary sources uh, readily available when you're teaching, you know, that makes such a difference. It's important for um, students to lay their eyes on these documents and be able to connect and and also understand the narrative, the, the larger narrative that you're trying to to teach. So, 
hooray for teachers, hooray for primary documents. And <laughs> like I said, wait for January 8th, the um, middle grade reader comes out. And, you know, with this book, the cover of the book has a rendering of, of Ona, one that we, I worked with a wonderful illustrator out of Baltimore who, you know, from the descriptions that we have of Ona, put together a sort of sketch of what we believe she looked like. Now, I didn't feel like I could do that for the adult version, but for the middle grade reader, I, I thought it was really important for kids to be able to have a visual of her. Right. And because we don't have a portrait, we don't have an image, we don't have a painting of her, this, this will have to stand in its place. Well, that's tremendous. We will look forward to it. And when that's out, we will be happy to, you know, let everyone know and pass on the word that that's available too for educators. So wonderful. So thank you again so much for joining us today and, and sharing all your knowledge and just your great work you're doing in the history field and beyond. You're making your work meaningful beyond, you know, just the, the field of history. So thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Yeah, so I have a website. It's my name, ericaarmstrongdunbar.com. And it's updated pretty frequently, information about my work. Also, contact if you want to get in touch with me. You can do it through the site. I also have pictures of the book clubs that reach out to me around the nation that are all reading Ona. And what I tell folks is if you have a book club meeting and if I'm available, I'm probably not going to come to your house, but I will <laughs> Skype in <laughs> if I can. So um, it's a great place to also to, to sort of not just for, for Never Caught and for the middle grade version of it, but just in general to see the kind of work that I do as a, a historian who focuses on African-American women in the 18th and 19th centuries. Thank you. Uh, we will make sure to get all of that information in our show notes and to the links to your website, links to your books, and we'll add the new book to the show notes once it's up and available. And then maybe we can also find some of these your favorite primary documents and add those right into the show notes for social studies oh, teachers Oh, that would be great. Yes, so, yes, that would be great. So we'll get those there too. So we'll th again, thank you so much for joining us, and we certainly will hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Thank you so much. It's been great. Here at the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative, or educational, tweet us at Visions of Ed, or you can hit us up on Facebook. And of course, if you have not already, please subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or pretty much anywhere else you find your podcasts. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. That helps people find the podcast, so we appreciate you doing that. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And in lieu of our absent Michael Milton, you can find him. He is at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.